But instead of continually wishing and hoping for this sort of reuniting or uniting really for the first time with my family and being seen and loved and cared for with them, I have over time and through Al-Anon come to a place where I can do that within myself. Welcome to episode 397 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Jeff, Christina, Beverly, Troy, Nikki, and Leslie. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Jeff, Christina, Beverly, Troy, Nikki, and Leslie for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends of family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today, and joining me today is Misty. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Misty. Thanks so much for having me. It's It's a real gift to be here. You sent me some of your earlier writings, and it opened with a quote from Mark Nepo about forgiveness. Would you like to read that for us? I would love to read that. Mark Nepo, it's the book that I actually chose to read from today as well. It is useful to realize that the word forgive originally meant both to give and receive. Give for. In keeping with the original meaning, we can see the inner reward for forgiveness is the exchange of life, the give and take between our soul and the universe. It is hard to comprehend how this works, yet the mystery of true forgiveness waits in letting go of our ledgers of injustice and retribution in order to regain feeling in our heart. Mark Nepo. You have an additional reading that goes with that, then. I do, actually. I love that you pulled that particular one out. The reading that I have selected is from a book called The Book of Awakening, The Book of Awakening by Mark Nepo. It's a book I read from every day along with my Al-Anon literature. So here's the reading. It has a little beginning and then it gets into the meat of it. The pain was necessary to know the truth, but we don't have to keep the pain alive to keep the truth alive. This is what has kept me from forgiveness. The feeling that all I've been through will evaporate if I don't relive it. That if those who have hurt me don't see what they have done, my suffering will have been for nothing. In this, the stone I throw in the lake knows more than I. Its ripples vanish. What it really comes down to is the clear heart to stop defining who I am by those who have hurt me and to take up the risk to love myself, to validate my own experience, pain and all from the center out. As anyone who has been wronged can attest, in order to keep the fire for justice burning, we need to keep burning our wounds open as perpetual evidence. Living like this, it is impossible to heal. Living like this, we become our own version of Prometheus. 
having our innards eaten daily by some large bird of woundedness. Forgiveness has deeper rewards than excusing someone for how they have hurt us. The deeper healing comes in exchange of our resentments for our inner freedom. At last, the wound, even if never acknowledged by the other person, can heal and our lives can continue. It is useful to realize that the word forgive originally meant both to give and receive, to give for. In keeping with the original meaning, we can see that the inner reward for forgiveness is the exchange of life, the give and take between our soul and the universe. It is hard to comprehend how this works, yet the mystery of true forgiveness waits in letting go ledgers of injustice and retribution in order to regain the feeling in our heart. We can only hope to begin this exchange today. Now, by forgiving what's broken in each other and imagining through love how these holy pieces go together. What a great reading. He brings up the myth of Prometheus, which, as I recall from Greek mythology, Prometheus was not quite a god, I think, who brought the gift of fire to humankind. And fire was supposed to be kept to just the gods. For that, he was chained on a rock and a vulture or something came daily and ate his entrails. It's a pretty gruesome image. Relating that to how when I hold resentment and anger, it is eating me from the inside. It's a much more powerful, a much more gross image than the thing that I often hear in the rooms of recovery about letting someone else living rent-free in my head, but it's the same thing, just more pointed. What he says to me here is that finding forgiveness can help me to unchain myself from that rock. Yeah. What do you find in that reading? First of all, thank you for helping me understand that part of the reading, because clearly I didn't get that part of the reading, but yet I resonated so strongly with the reading. There's several things I love about this particular reading, Spencer. One is that the beginning, the pain was necessary to know the truth. Gosh, you know what that reminds me of? A lot of times in Al-Anon meetings, people will say that they're grateful for their alcoholic or they're grateful for the terrible difficulties that they've gone through with their alcoholics. And I've never been able to really connect with that. But this reading helps me to connect a little bit more with that because I think it is through the difficulties that I've been through that I've come to where I am today. So the pain was necessary to know the truth to know the truth, but we don't have to keep the pain alive to keep the truth alive. Every human life, my human life, every human life has pain in it. And very often where the pain has been the greatest, I've run the hardest. And I haven't known that I was running the hardest from that pain really until I came into Al-Anon. So as I've turned toward that pain and looked at it with curiosity, not a microscope, with with a gentleness, I've found some truths that have been very difficult to look at. And the hardest of which, by the way, are the ones where I've looked at how I've allowed myself to be treated 
how I've allowed myself to talk to myself, how I've continually gone to the bread store looking for milk. I've had to feel the pain of recognizing that I'm the one that keeps going to that place, hoping that it'll be different. And by looking at that reality, instead of running from it, I've been able to heal from it. And it's not an easy journey. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But that for me is a big part of this whole thing that he wrote on forgiveness and how it speaks to me. Yeah, I kind of want to sit here and reread it all over again. It gives me access to looking at the pain, the real source of pain. And instead of running from it, it's looking at the pain and going, where is this really? And not only where is the pain, but where can I do something about that? And in many of the pains I talked about in the piece that I sent to you, I can't do anything about that pain. I can't do anything about the pain of my childhood and how I was raised. I can't do anything about those things. But what I can do is sit with myself and especially when I get reactive or I get scared and listen to myself. And that is a lot of what Al-Anon has taught me. So instead of continually wishing and hoping for this sort of reuniting or uniting really for the first time with my family and being seen and loved and cared for with them, I have over time and through Al-Anon come to a place where I can do that within myself. And I stopped I stopped going there. And in the writing, I talked a lot about how difficult it is because I still love. There's so much love that comes through me for all of the people in my family. I'm a story person, Spencer, so I'm just going to go into the heart of the story. It was about eight years ago that my niece called to let me know some of the things that had been happening to her. She was being sexually abused by my brother. And that broke open a lot of denial that I didn't know I was sitting on. I didn't know, A, that she was being treated that way, but also I'm the kind of person that looks a little deeper, if hurting people hurt people. What happened to my brother was my next question as a child. I didn't go immediately to what happened to me as a child, what happened to him, because I have so much compassion for him. And when I went there about my brother, I started to see some things that happened to me in my childhood. And so all of that drove so much anxiety. And my therapist said and begged me, Misty, just please just go to six meetings. Just go to six meetings. And I finally went to a meeting about eight years ago. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes, these people understand what I've gone through. I thought that here I am, like all of my defense mechanisms were being taken away and nothing was working to help me to feel safe. I couldn't control any outcomes. Like I tried with my brother to, I wanted to protect my niece. And so I recorded a phone call where he said what he actually did. And that's illegal. You can't do that. So at least not in the state I was in. So anxiety was through the roof. And that's how I came into Al-Anon, trying to figure out how to do life differently. I never came in for anybody else. I really came in because I had so much anxiety And over the course of the next year, roughly, I came to understand that my mom knew a lot of what was going on to my niece, Mm. which let me know, oh, maybe she knew some things that were going on with me as a child. And that was horrendously painful. And then there was a phone call that I had made. I won't go into the details of the story, but in the phone call I made to my mom, she said to me, I love you, but... 
basically, if you don't protect your brother in this, instead of helping his daughter, then I'm not going to love you. She didn't say those words. All she said was, I love you, but. And it was in that moment that I understood that the only way I'm going to have any sort of healing is to engulf myself in recovery. A few months after that, my mom ended up in the hospital. She had a tick-borne bacterial infection and I got a phone call. I had a phone call with the nurse and the nurse said she would be able to fight this. She has, she was on an, a feeding tube and breathing and all. She was completely in need. Like she couldn't breathe on her own and she couldn't eat on her own. Mm-hmm. I forget what they call that, but she would be able to fight this if she wasn't, if she wasn't dealing with withdrawal. And that was the first time I really understood just how severe alcoholism was in my family. Like I, I always knew, but that really woke me up. I think it was about 16 days later, they were able to get the breathing tube out and she just pulled her own feeding tube out and commanded that they take her off of any of the psychotropic drugs they had her on. And then she called me and asked me to, I'm the youngest of four, to ask me to come and teach her to learn how to walk again. Mm. And Spencer, I'm in the car when she called me. I pulled over the car and I just said, yeah, I'm going to have to call you back. And it it was very clear, Spencer. The little whisper that I got was, you can't go. You can't go. And it was devastating to me because in my worldview, how I was raised, a good daughter does this, a good aunt does this, a good sister does this. And I wasn't doing anything in accordance with that. And this would definitely not be that. So I was, I had shame. I wanted to go. I had so much anxiety in my body. At the time, my business was not doing very well. So I wasn't busy, basically. I had too much time to think. So I have my mom in this condition. I have my niece that just called me. And a year before that, I had my nephew, who was the first love of my life. He was 19 years old and he passed away in a car accident. So it started with him and then it went to my niece and now my mom and I can't go. And so I, when I called her back, I messaged her later, just a couple of hours later. And I said, listen, I would love to have a relationship with you and dad, but it would require that you be in recovery. And then we didn't speak again for years. We'd send birthday cards back and forth, but we just didn't talk at all. No, no talking, which really wasn't very different than how it was for me growing up anyway. Hmm. They never reached out to me. And I was always the one to make a relationship happen, even though relationships required two people, like we relate with one another. That void was just reality emerging for me. So here I am. I can't be an aunt anymore because that's been taken from me. My siblings are all, I think the best way to say this, Spencer, is that I grew up in a very abusive environment and all my siblings and my parents, a lot of addiction and a lot of abuse and a lot of neglect. I don't know what they were doing, but they didn't want a vacation with me. And so I let that go. And so it was just me. Now I'm not a sister. I'm not an aunt. I'm not a daughter anymore. I didn't have any work. I was like nobody all of a sudden. And I'm on the floor of my townhome with my wife and I together. And I'm crying every day, just constantly. It was so terrifying. And I remember screaming at the top of my lungs at her one day as I'm going to go out the front door And she's looking at me like, what are you yelling for? And I'm like, don't look at me like that. And then I left. And that's all I remember. And I came back in and I didn't know what I'd actually said to her. I screamed at her. I don't know who I am. You heard that from her later? 
Yeah, she told me that in my state of crazy, what I yelled at her was, I don't know who I am. And then I walked out. And so that was truly the moment in which I was at my lowest of, I didn't know who I was. I was attached to all these other things. And it's taken me eight years of coming to Al-Anon, a lot of therapy, to, to really become familiar with my heart, which is so big and so beautiful. I'm one of the most kind, loving, generous people I've ever known. I just didn't know that. And I was always looking for somebody else to tell me that. And I don't need that as much anymore. I still need it. I think I'm going to need it for the rest of my life. But now I know where to go to ask for it or to receive it. One other quick part, and then I'll pause and I'd love to hear some of your reflection. About a year and a half ago, I realized that if something were to happen to my mom, I wouldn't be okay. Like I needed to apologize to her for not being able to come and help her learn how to walk again. You know, it's not anything I could have done differently, but I was still very deeply sad that I couldn't be there for her when she needed me. And so I called her to apologize. I couldn't be there. And then I also, at the same time, told her that I forgive her. And, you know, what she said back to me was, for what? And I said, I've spent the last several years coming to understand what I lived through. And it was a lot. And there was a lot of abuse and neglect there. And I just want you to know that I forgive you. And she said, abuse? What abuse? And when she said that, my heart went into my throat and I couldn't think. And I wish I would have in that moment just said, do you really want to know? Because she probably would have said no. But what came out of my mouth was just some of the words that they called me, which is hardly, yes, words do hurt, but there was so much more to the picture that I already knew. I just think I was sensitive about, I, th- I just think, think I had access to it in the moment to say what it was, but it doesn't matter because I don't think she wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Then just about three months ago, I got an, another message from my mom letting me know that my father was in the hospital and in about a week I got three messages, which ended with, because he had Lewy body dementia, which I later learned is strongly correlated with alcoholism. And so basically my father died of the effects of alcoholism. And she texted me to let me know what was going on. And then when he passed, she called to let me know. But in the moment when we got on the phone before he passed, we did talk once. I didn't know what was going on and I didn't understand why she was calling me. I was sort of in a panic and thank God Yvette, my wife, was there. I looked at her and I'm like, why is she calling me? What am I supposed to say? And then what came for me a lot through the program is what would love do right now? What would love say? What would love do? If I wasn't afraid, what would I say? And my answers were, I'm so sorry. This has been so difficult for you and love you. And I'm sending prayers to you and to dad. And I hope that everything It really turns out well. I didn't realize he was that close to death. She didn't tell me that. And then he passed and I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I have to go to the service. It's not good for me. It's not a place where I need to be. Al-Anon jumps in again for me right there because I remember hearing stories of people who didn't choose to go to funerals because it wasn't what was in their best interest. What's good for me is good for we, that concept, which I learned in Al-Anon. And one the morning after he passed, I got some courage and I called my mom and I said, that, hey, if you want me to come, I will come. And she said, no, I don't want you to come and we're not having a service. 
which was either answer to that question, would you like me to come, would have been difficult for me. Because if she said no, she doesn't care to have me around. And if she says yes, now I got to (laughs) go. I don't want to be in that environment. It's toxic for me. And so it was a blessing in the end. And I didn't go. And I tried for the last few months. I tried just to reach out to see how she's doing. But it's nothing's changed. Just my mom is the way that she is. And she's always been this way. She doesn't want any emotions in her life, which is bizarre to me because we're human. And that's part of our humanity, right? We are emotional, we're physical, and we're intellectual. But she has made a decision for a long, all of her life that she doesn't want that. So that is a long rambling, Spencer. I'm going to pause and take a breath here. I didn't find it so rambling. I realized about halfway through the story that I needed to take some notes because I wouldn't remember all the things that, I, <laughs> that hit me in there. I, I know I missed some stuff earlier, but the first thing that really jumped out at me was when you were screaming, I don't know who I am. I know that I personally, and I think a lot of people that I have met in the rooms, have defined ourselves in relationship to the other people in our lives and not as individuals. That's not 100% true, I don't think. Certainly not for me. I can only speak from my insides. But there was a lot of that. and. Coming into a program of 12-step recovery, Al-Anon for me, which has this large component of self-examination, which, of course, when I saw steps four and five, I thought it was about finding all the things that are wrong with me, because that was my fear-based reaction to the that work. But what I have found is that it helped me to find who I am. I faced this in a different way when my mother died because I wanted to understand, to be able to articulate who she was outside of those relations of mother and wife and grandmother that had, for me, really defined her for so long. She's my mother, okay? But who is she as an individual? What did she do? that was special in the world or that was outside of those roles. So that really struck me. What I heard there, and you can tell me that I'm wrong, was that you had been defining yourself as a daughter, a sister, an aunt. And when those were taken away from you, you were like, I don't know who I am. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I had the added bonus of the career not having much progress. Right. Yes. Also, we are human doing. A big definition of who I am is what I do in the world. And when that's not working, yeah, (laughs) that's happened for me a few times in my life where I was doing something and it wasn't working. And I knew that it wasn't working. And I knew that the people around me who were depending on me to do the thing knew that it wasn't working. Not a comfortable place to be, is it? No. No. I wrote down, for what? So your mom's response, when you said you were forgiving her, that's what that was, she was responding to, is that right? That's right, yeah, for what? She said, for what am I forgiving you for? Wow. (laughs) Wow. From your writing, 
there was something in there maybe your therapist said about her, your mother's denial of what had happened because she couldn't face it? Yes. What she said was that I was threatening her denial. And those words set me free. Yeah. When Gail said to me that I was threatening my mom's denial, I got it for the first time in my life. I really got it. Mm -hmm. That my emotionality, that my authenticity, that my willingness to be bold and real with what's happening, for me, that threatens her denial. Yeah. When you're that steeped in denial, and I remember one time, this happened more than once, but one time in particular, I think I was 16, and something really hard had happened. My cousin, which was another love of mine, at the age of seven died and we got the phone call. My mom took the call and I eagerly waited. She had a half a heart. She was going through heart surgery. Hmm. She didn't make it. My mom took the call. She hung up and she looked at me. She says, she's dead. And I ran outside and I scream cried outside. Nobody came, no neighbors, not my parents. I just cried. And that same day she was banging her hands on her legs. And what she was saying was, I will not have any emotion in my life. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I will not have any emotion in my life. My father, 20 years ago, he had to go and have a surgery. My mom called, I just want you to know that your father's going to have a surgery. He's just going to have three of his arteries unblocked in his heart. And I was like, mom, they call that triple bypass surgery. If you make this into a big deal, I will not tell you another thing. So yeah. what I knew was that it's not okay to not be okay. Mm. If you're not just all the time, like steady, all everything's cool. Let's just have a beer and relax. It's not okay to not be okay. Yeah. And so I can't, and I won't ever be able to change that in anybody in my family. So those words again of, I threatened her denial. That's, that was another layer of denial. Just pretend like he's not well or that he is well. He's fine. It's just a small thing. No big deal. That helps her to live. And that's not anything to do with me. It's just not how I choose to live. But it's still hard because she's my mom, Spencer. And I love this woman. She's a beautiful person. I can see who she is. I think I can see who she is underneath the addiction. There's some things I learned from her. There's some beauty to her. Sure. I wish to be able to have a real relationship with her, but I have never had that. Everything in our relationship has always been about an exchange for something, right? You do this for me, then I look this way. Like I became a human being as a person when I started playing sports. Sports is what saved my life. I became somebody to my mom for the first time because I became an Olympic hopeful coming out of high school. So now I was somebody to her, but everything was based on how do you make me look, mm. not I just love you as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wrote down, what would love do? You were trying to understand how to respond to something that happened. Yeah, yeah. My mom had called me to let me know about what was going on with my dad, and I didn't understand the severity of the situation, so I didn't understand why she was calling me. And this is my father, not just her husband. This is my father. And yeah. she's telling me about some things that were really difficult to hear. I didn't know why she was calling. And so I felt so reactive inside. And that's why I reached for this, what would love do? If I wasn't afraid right now, what would I say? Mm. 
when I relate that to the 12 steps, that is step three, step 11, asking if God is love or if love is God, what would I do if I was acting out of the will of my higher power, which is love or your higher power? Love, God, universe, love, God, universe, all these are all words I would use to describe that same entity. Yep. Yeah. Inner wisdom, I sometimes use that. For me, it's that sometimes I hear God as a whisper. Sometimes I hear God as a birds flying over. Yeah. What I heard very distinctly in that part of the story was, I don't know what to do. I can't act out of my own self-will because I don't know where that takes me. So I'm going to let go of that, and I'm going to go with, you know, what God would have me do. That's what I heard there. Thank you for that. I would have never paired that up together, but that's absolutely because what I would have done before I got involved in Al-Anon was to try to get her to care about how I was feeling. And that definitely doesn't work, right? Never has, but I know it now. There's so much in there. I'm (laughs) I'm unpacking it all over the place still. And I think I totally understand this thing where it's not okay to be not okay. I feel like there were definitely times in my life where, yeah, I'm just going to put that aside. I can't deal with that. 20 years of recovery work, I think, has really helped me to feel my emotions, to not stuff them. I have said many times on this podcast that by the time I came to Al-Anon, I had stuffed so much down. And this is one interpretation, but that I had stuffed so many feelings that I didn't want to feel that it was all coming out sideways as rage on the people around me. For me, it was coming out as rage on myself. Mm. I was nice to everybody everybody else. <laughs> but, yeah, it was an inside thing. And somehow coming into the rooms for the first time, I think this must have been just the example of the people who were there. The people who were practicing Step 12 and carrying the message that this was a place where it was okay to be not okay, to turn that phrase around. Yeah. I could let out my pain in those rooms. I could let out my pain with those people. And that was really the first place the first time in 40, 45 something years of life where I feel I had been able to do that, to be okay with being not okay, to not have to put on that front, put on that image of, yes, it's okay. I'm dying inside, but it's fine. I think both of my parents were pretty stoic people. I remember like my father would express anger that was scary. I don't remember ever seeing him express any kind of vulnerability. Do you remember the first time you saw somebody be vulnerable and it was um, comfortable for you? Hmm. Seeing somebody else being vulnerable, that's probably in a movie, like not a real person in air quotes there. There was no like aha moment. I do know that As an emo teenager, 
I tried to be dramatically vulnerable at times because that would get me attention, maybe. I think probably I had some relationships in college where people were more open and more honest. My my girlfriend in college, who later became my first wife, her sister had died in an automobile accident. So that vulnerability came out in her at times. And if I think about my reaction, I was uncomfortable. And I think partly because I thought I was supposed to be able to fix it for her. And I couldn't. My codependency developed early, (laughs) was very powerful in my life. I probably could express some vulnerability with my wife in the first 18 years of our marriage before I got into recovery, but not when it related to my relationship with her, which is where a lot of the pain was happening, which is Mm. why it was getting stuffed because I didn't have anybody else that I could let it out with. And so again, coming into the rooms and just knowing somehow that it was safe was really huge. You said two things that I just want to respond to if if I can. Yeah. You said dramatically vulnerable. And my first instinct when you said those words was, yes, me too. And then my second reaction to those words are, I don't know that it's possible to be dramatically vulnerable. Because I think that whatever I'm doing to try to help me get food, sometimes that food is love, sometimes that food is literal food, Sometimes that food is just connection in some way. Mm -hmm. Whatever I'm doing to get that, I I want to, in my language today, celebrate that. Whereas when I hear the word dramatic, I think negative. I don't think that for me growing up, being called dramatic was definitely not a positive thing. And I definitely was quite dramatic at times. But I think that that drama is how I survived. It's how I got my needs met at the time. And so almost a little bit of a tear comes to me even thinking about that I had that ability to care for myself, to find what I need. The other thing I thought of was the very first time I came into an Al-Anon meeting, I saw there was just two men. And I'm embarrassed to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I remember thinking, if one of these men cry, I'm out. (laughs) and then within 10 minutes one of those men cried and i was like i definitely didn't leave and within 30 minutes i was also crying so it was the first time where i had a chance to experience men be vulnerable because when men cry for me because of my training and society it's not safe like we need men to not cry (laughs) we need men to be the strong ones Because if you cry, then we're all in trouble. I think it's way too much weight to put on any human being to be always the strong one. And as if tears make you weak. So I had to learn. Somebody said early on, and it was so perfect for me. She said that when she first came into Al-Anon, she felt like an emotional burn victim. And that is exactly how I felt when he started to cry. I was like, oh my God, this is too much. I felt like my skin was on fire. And as people shared so authentically about their lives, I felt like I was on fire. And now I don't feel that way anymore. Now I feel grateful when anybody 
has the courage to cry because life can be so hard and the things that happen can be so hard. It's life is so vulnerable. And if things don't happen the way that we think we need them to so that we can then be okay, that's painful. It's so hard. So to be able to cry almost gives us a chance to shed all that. So those are my two things. It was not authentic vulnerability. It definitely was not. It was me making up a story to get attention. But is that a bad thing in your perspective today? It's not real. Say more about them. It's not real. How do you mean? Because what I was looking for was for somebody to pay attention to me, somebody to feel sorry for me. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to interpret my 16, 17-year-old brain from 50 years later. But okay, so here's an example. And I guess there's a trigger warning here. There's a little bit of suicidal ideation going on. I was at a church youth weekend thing, which back in the 70s, there was a lot of freedom given to the youth in these situations. It was not a lot of adult oversight of what was happening. I was feeling, I'll just say I was feeling emo, okay? That's the best word I can put to it right now. And I found myself standing at the top of a fire escape from like the third story of this urban church and looking down and thinking, what would happen if I just fell over this railing? And what I wanted was somebody to notice me doing that and say, what the hell is going on here? Don't do that. Of course, that didn't happen. I'm pretty sure I didn't really mean it. That thought did enter my mind. What if? What would people feel if I did that? Would they be so sorry for me? Would they miss me? Weird teenage brain thinking. Um, I don't think it's weird. I don't think it's weird at all, Spencer. I think it makes a lot of sense. I had a very similar experience. I lived in a on the eighth floor in a building in Bethesda, Maryland. And many times I thought, if I threw myself over the edge of this, nobody would even know because nobody in my family ever reached out to me. Like literally nobody would know. I don't know if I were to die inside this apartment building, nobody would know because I didn't have any friends yet. I just moved to this area and nobody in my family reached out. So it was... I get it. And I don't think that's to be trivialized. I think that is the reason why we come to Al-Anon. That's the reason why I listen, why we listen. I listen to people in their struggle because we all need to be heard, seen, valued. We all need to be loved. We all need to be seen. I think more people have that experience than what any of us can possibly imagine. And I think that if we could recognize that and offer our attention to people and our love to people even when the way that they're behaving isn't necessarily the way that we would like for them to behave, if more of us can recognize that's just a call for attention and love, then maybe we can offer a love and attention uh, rather than judgment. And for me, I say that because that happens to me all the time, still inside myself. I think nobody can see me. Nobody can hear me. I'm nobody. Those thoughts go through my head plenty of times every day still. And what helps me with that is to remember that that is very normal for me, for my upbringing, and to offer myself as much love as I might need in that day. For me, it's who can I reach out to? Who can I offer love to? Because that oftentimes helps me to feel 
good, but also who can I share where I am right now with and have that be looked at with love and kindness and heard without there's something wrong with you. How can I help myself to be seen? I just think that is a very normal thing for somebody who grew up the way that I did and the way that you did. Yeah. This is a fantastic conversation that, that we're having. We have wandered a little bit from this theme that we started of about forgiveness, but that's okay. Do we want to come back? Because in your story, you told your mother you forgive her and then for what and not okay to feel not okay and so on. But how did you get to the point where you could say that? What journey did you have to take through understanding what forgiveness is about, what it is not? How do you get there? Because in the end, at least what I felt from your story was you didn't get any acceptance of that statement, but I feel like it did something for you, even so. Yeah, and I would say actually a lot of our conversation has still been very much around forgiveness, because for me, forgiveness at the core is about acceptance. I wouldn't say I'm there. (laughs) I wish I was there, Spencer. Every day is a new day to allow myself to to be there. And some days I'm not, is the honest God. Some days I just want to call her and I just want to call her and I just want to say I love you a million times in the prayer that she will say I love you too and that we can then have a relationship. Like that is still there for me regularly. So I have to contend with that. But what helps me the most is The more that I look at myself and I see the strategies that I use to deal with the uncertainties of life, the more I have compassion for her. Because to say very specifically, there's been times, and I still have this today a lot, my body holds a lot of tension. Even though emotionally and intellectually, I I understand a lot of it. My body is still holding on to it. So I get a lot of tension in my head and my jaw and my neck and my shoulders. I've got a lot of nerve pain in my hands. Part of that is because I overtrained for a triathlon. And I don't know, maybe there's something else there about gripping life too hard, maybe. But I think to myself sometimes when my brain starts to go and I start to obsess about trying to fix myself, which is what I do, or try to fix my situation, try to become somebody, try to become seen, all of that to matter in the world. I and my whole body tightens up and it hurts. It hurts. I think to myself, I understand why she drinks. This shit is hard. This sucks. I don't drink, Spencer. I stopped drinking by 18 years ago, in part because I take medication to help me with anxiety and those two things don't mix. And in part because I saw when my grandfather passed, I saw all of the alcoholism in, in, in my family and I just decided that I didn't want that for myself. And so I, I don't drink, but sometimes I really want something to take off the edge. And so I reach for food. I reach for exercise. I reach for, I'll try to write something that I think is going to touch people. I'll reach for something to fill that void. And I'm still working at being able to just be with the discomfort and let it pass. So I say all of that because forgiveness is in the acceptance of our humanity. Like nothing that she did or didn't do. I'm still learning this. This is still making its way into the fears of my being. 
But nothing that she said or did or didn't do or didn't say had anything to do with me at all. It has to do with her and the journey that she has been on and her pains that she's gone through, most of which I don't know. Like, Spencer, I haven't, I asked my mom several years ago, when did you go through menopause? Just so I could have an idea of when I might have that experience. And she told me that was a rude question and that was none of my business because that is how sensitive that she is to anything that's maybe not exciting to talk about. But that's just her. That has nothing to do with me. That's just her inability to be with any level of things that cause her. And I don't know, maybe something happened to her around menopause and her mom. I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. And so I can now lean back on, I don't know. And I accept the human condition. None of us, I don't think any of, I haven't met anybody who loves the vulnerability of all of the uncertainties of life. I think most of us want to have some semblance of control, especially around our mortality or around our how we're seen as parents, as whatever. I'm not a parent, but as whatever. And it's difficult. So for me, again, just the acceptance of humanity, of our humanity is what's helped me the most with this. And it's not about me, right? The Q-tip, quit taking it personally. It's not about me, but that doesn't mean it doesn't affect me. Yeah. Oh, for it's sure. not about me. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect me, right? So I have to deal with the effects on me. Yeah. I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, pull an example out of my own life here so that I can talk from I statements rather than you statements. And it's not coming. So I I guess I'm going to go vague. So somebody acting out of their own humanity does something that has an impact on me that hurts me. Maybe they say something. So the impact on me is real. I am hurt by those words, but I can understand, I can accept that the person who said the words did so because of their own life experience and their own perspective that is not mine. And I can find forgiveness in that acceptance, in that understanding that they weren't aiming that at me explicitly. And this gets to to the hard part of forgiving something It can't be undone. It happened. But also more that the person who did it could very possibly do it again because they're not changing. I can't change them. I can wish they would change, but I can't change them. And for me, sometimes, and I hear this a lot when we're talking about forgiveness in in the rooms and otherwise, there's a statement that, If I forgive that action, that I'm saying it's okay, that I'm condoning it. And the understanding that I've had to come to around some of these cases where the other person's not going to change or they're no longer in my life, but I'm still carrying that hurt, is that I can let go of the resentment I can let go of, I love this phrase that I've heard that I've said a few times, I'm sure on the podcast that I'm letting go of the wish that the past could be different because you know what? The past will never be different. That is so good, Spencer. 
I hate that one. <laughs> 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 it almost feels like I need to. No, it's got to. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> it's not going to change. There's no time machine. Like getting up. <laughs> but if I hang on to the pain of the thing that happened in the past and I let that pain eat at me from inside, that's not good for me. So that sense of forgiveness, of letting go of the anger, the resentment, the whatever of this thing that happened in the past that I've been carrying with me for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, that helps me. Forgive, but don't forget, I think, is a part of that. Okay, stupid physical example. I touch a hot stove and I burn myself. Okay. It is in the nature of the stove to be hot. <laughs> right? That's yep. what it's for. Yep. I forgive the stove for being hot because that's in its nature. But I don't forget that when I touch it, I get burned. Because that helps me to not do it again. And I can bring that <laughs> into human relations yeah. by understanding that people are who they are and that if I put myself in a particular situation or if I interact with a person in a particular way, they're probably going to do the same thing that they did before and it's going to hurt me again. And so I can make a choice to not do that, to not put myself in that place, to not say those things to my loved one that often bounce rebound at me in, in them saying something that hurts me. I can make that choice. And so forgive and forget is a really, that's the tough one because I don't necessarily want to forget. I just don't want that pain to keep hurting me. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I would call my sister and my sister was really, really, really an angry person is the best way to say it. Mm -hmm. Very abusive. And I would call her, I was struggling with something and she, and she would do this almost every time. You think you have a bad, you should try having three kids. And then she'd go into all of that. <laughs> and, but I would still call her, <laughs> but it took me forever to finally stop calling her because it was, she's always going to do that. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. never going to, I'm never going to feel supported. Yeah. Uh, it's like that joke, doctor, it hurts when I do this. Well, stop don't doing do it. that. <laughs> <laughs> fix it for me no just don't do that all right my dog my wonderful athletic dog was chasing a rabbit in the backyard the other day and broke a toe um, oh ouch yeah and he was limping and his toe was swollen and so i took him to the vet and they're like took an x-ray and said yep he broke it there's not much we can do about it here's some pain meds and here's bill that's kind of what i expected but we, I was hoping it was a sprain, but no, it's a break. So he's not supposed to do things that would re-injure it, except he's a dog. I can't explain to him, like, don't run around the backyard because he's a dog. But you're comparing us to dogs now. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it's the. So true. I get it. If it's in my nature. To do a certain thing, at least as as a human, 
with presumably a brain, I can learn to not do the thing that hurts. And actually, I think I saw this behavior in him the other day after he had broken his toe. I was sending him out in the backyard to do his business, and he didn't want to go on the grass. And I think in his little dog brain, there was this thing like, oh, I was on the grass and it hurt me. So I'm not going to go there. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And, And I can see that behavior in me. Oh, that situation was really bad. I'm just never going to go in that situation again. Whereas it was like that particular situation, not that general situation. It happens. And forgiveness, you wrote, or I took this from your writing anyway, forgiveness does not mean that your relationship with the other person will improve. And I guess you're seeing that with your mother. It's the hardest one. I think I thought for, even when I called her to forgive her, I think I still thought that now maybe we can have a real relationship. Yeah. I still reach for that. I still try to keep hope alive rather than just accept reality. Um, for me, I think also like even when I see relationship improved, even to have a relationship <laughs> where you're having an understanding that in relationship we hurt each other, it's a part of being human. We mm-hmm. all create stories and we all say things and we misinterpret things all the time. So we hurt each other and we don't mean to, but can we just acknowledge that and that I don't even have that. I've never even had that with my mom. Improved relationship or even just even have a relationship. Mm-hmm. The acceptance of that. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness is not, does not create a now relationship. It, it doesn't. It just frees from your expectations of what you hope maybe someday. Yeah. I think the greatest gift in forgiveness is being freed of my expectations. Being freed of your expectations. Yes. i got to write that down which we all know that expectations are premeditated resentments. They sure are. You wrote, forgiveness is not an event. It's a process. When I do my inventory, I've done it several times, and every time I've done it, I've uncovered some new stuff. I may say, I forgive this person for this past harm and mean it. And then as life goes on, I may discover more harm that I hadn't recognized the first time. And I may have to come back. But I also don't think I have ever gone straight from this hurts to you're forgiven. No, gosh. But I would like this to be the case. I've tried that so many times. It just doesn't work. (laughs) I want to get out of the pain. So if I just go, I forgive you. It doesn't work that way. You said forgiveness is a process. And I thought of the opposite of that, right? Forgiveness, we're just done. We did it. And this is how my brain likes to work. I just want to already be there. I want to do it, be there, be done. Yeah. I call that the as soon as syndrome. So as soon as I forgive, then I'm going to be okay. As Mm -hmm. soon as I cause a relationship to happen there, then I'm going to be okay. So I get tripped up in the as soon as syndrome. When I can remember that it's, there's no there, right? Life is in the journey. It's not in the destination. I found these steps in the writing that you sent me. Step one, feel it. 
And earlier you said that I have to feel the pain to really know it. Say my knee hurts. Well, okay, my knee hurts. When does it hurt? Does it hurt when I'm sitting? Does it hurt when I'm walking? Does it hurt going up and downstairs? Because all of those are different aspects of what's going on. And if I want to help my knee not to hurt, I have to feel all the different, I don't know, I'm trying to get a metaphor here or an analogy or something, and I don't know if I'm really getting there. But feeling, if I just say, wow, that hurt, okay, I'm going to move on, I may be leaving part of it behind to, to fester and come up later. I think is what, that's what I get out of this. Like actually feel it. I like your analogy of the knee hurting, because even if you do, when you go to a doctor, the doctor's going to ask you a series of questions about (laughs) that hurt the most, you know, all those questions. And if you go to a physical therapist, they're going to ask, they're going to put you through all these motions and they're going to ask you a lot of questions about when you're experiencing the pain more or less, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Do I feel it when I first get up in the morning or do I feel it at the end of the day? Because that points to different parts of my body that are affected. Yeah. It also makes me think of, it's been a few years now that I haven't had this, but I didn't know it at the time, but I I would have a lot of anxiety and it would come out of nowhere and I'd go in this place of panic. And I started to pay attention to the panic and what had come. Long story short, it took me a little while to gather that this was happening but whenever my wife would open a, a can of like soda water and the sound, mm-hmm. that was what was causing my heart to jump into my throat. Mm-hmm. Because on a physiological level, I was associating that with the sound of a beer can opening. Mm-hmm. And so that is how helpful and how useful it was for me to feel it. So in the moment to go, I'm feeling panic. What's happening right now? Yvette just opened a can of soda water. And then I came to understand that I was associating that again with some history. And over time, uh, I used in in, uh, psychology, one of my undergrads in psychology, a term called systematic desensitization. And so systematically over time, I desensitized myself to that sound through having her let me know that she's getting ready to do it. And then I found a way to associate that with something that was more positive. Yeah. So anyway, that goes well with the feeling it as well. Like when yeah. it's happening, when you're feeling emotions, what's happening around you. Yeah. And then your next step is get help because sometimes we can't deal with the pain on our own. Right. Yeah. I mean, in Alana, we say, don't, um, don't go into your head yourself. Yes. Yeah. It's a dangerous neighborhood. <laughs> don't go in alone. No, I was going alone. It's a dangerous neighborhood. It is. I remember when I first got to Alamon, I went through all the 12 steps by myself because nobody was perfect enough for me to trust them to go through it with. <laughs> I just didn't help at all. Didn't help. And then I've gone through the steps with others over the years. But getting help piece, I needed and I have needed a lot more help than just Alamon. I've gone through a lot of therapies that have really helped me to understand what happened and what's happening in the moment. I couldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for all of the people who've helped me, including the dozens of people inside Al-Anon, hundreds really of people inside Al-Anon whose experience, strength, and hope guided the way for me and who listened to me and who care enough. Like people, 
Ah, I could go on and on about getting help. Trying to go it alone is just the disease more of it, right? Yeah. And I think, as you've mentioned, there's lots of different ways of getting help, lots of different modalities, if I can use that word. Yeah. It could be go to a meeting. It could be pray. It could be talk to a professional. It could be uh, read, some, read some literature, listen to, listen to a podcast. All of those things are ways of getting out of my head. When I was very new in, in Al-Anon, I had the book How Al-Anon Works, and I discovered the stories in the back. When I was lying awake at three in the morning, I could pick up the book and I could read one of those stories, and it would calm me. And then I could go back to sleep. That's getting help. If I just laid there with my own brain spinning, I might eventually fall back asleep or I might not. I had to reach for something outside myself. I'm sorry. You're making help. Spencer, I love that. Yes. It doesn't mean, oh my God, I have to go get a therapist and blah, 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 blah. Okay. I think that might be what somebody first thinks of when they see that get help. And there's so many different ways of getting help. Yeah, you just made it really accessible. Thank you for that. Step three here, accept it, which we've talked through this, I think, to some extent already. Like, it happened. It hurts. If I deny that my feet hurt, which they do, my plantar fasciitis, I believe, is coming back, but I haven't been to the doctor about it yet. I'm sort of still in denial about it. Like, it's going to go away. It'll just go away by itself. Maybe it's not. So that takes me back to accept it. Now I can get help, get a different kind of help because I've accepted that this is not something that I'm going to fix on my own. Accept that that what is, whether I like it or not, acceptance in that sense is not condoning. It's not saying it's okay. It's just saying that it is. Yeah, it's hard. And it's that for me, I have to remember that I accepted it sometimes. (laughs) Did I accept it? No, I don't know. I'm going to have to do that again. Back to the steps I go. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And then number four here, give it to God. Let go and let God, however you want to express that. Yeah, this one's a really big one for me because it's so freeing. And when I got there with my mom with this, these four steps came to me as a result of that conversation I had where I was asking for forgiveness and also offering forgiveness to her, that conversation. Right. When I got off that phone, I was baffled. I, I, I just couldn't wrap my brain around what just happened. And of course, my, my initial reaction was to go to, I didn't do it right. I should have said this. I should have done that. <laughs> but as I was laying on the floor again, curled in a little ball. I realized a couple of things in that moment. One was that I would never go on the floor again in a little ball Mm. because I would never allow myself to speak to myself that way again, Mm -hmm. that I didn't do a good enough job. I'm not a good enough daughter. Like that conversation ended that day on the floor. And the second thing that happened on the floor that day was I give this to you, God. This is not mine. And it was the most free. Oh, and I also had a therapy session. We did a whole uh, theatrical thing around my mom. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I had a little visual of her, a little statue, which I found in my therapist's office 
best represented her for me that day. And I put a little candle in front of her, took her out of the center of my life and put her off to the side. And I put a little candle in front of her. And that candle for me represented me. Remember, she has her own higher power, Mm. right? She has her own higher power and I have my own higher power. And so this whole thing, that's the story of Misty's life is just unfolding. And I'm just going to give that to God. Now there's nothing more for me to do. I can just be and trust and learn to trust. I can just be and know that who I am is okay. Who I am is beautiful. And, and I can let go. I think that's a great place to stop. <laughs> I think it's excellent. I love it. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives. I asked you to bring songs, kind of short notice apparently, but uh, you, you came through. What's the first song you picked? I said in the beginning about how I'm not the kind of person that remembers songs. And sometimes when I listen to somebody else talk about songs, I'm like, how do you remember the songs that quickly? But I was on an Al-Anon meeting this morning, and I put out to my family that I need songs. And one of the ladies gave me a song that is absolutely my number one song, Amazing Grace. Mm -hmm. This song, the moment it plays, I just feel at peace. I just know that everything's okay in the world that I am no different than anybody else and all of us are human and flawed. And that is the beauty of my humanity, that I am imperfect. So this song grounds me in that way. And it was a re-gift. And then as a bunch of people were sending me more songs, it was such a good experience that you gave me, Spencer. So thank you. You chose a, a rendition of the song by Whitney Houston, which I listened to earlier and yeah what a voice and so emotional i love that that line twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved yeah but i didn't cause that i didn't cause it i can't cure it i can't control it yeah the three c's are right there yeah twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? I actually have something that relates to forgiveness, but I wanted to save it for here. A couple weeks ago today, actually, I was at an AA slash Al-Anon conference out in Colorado where I'd been invited to speak, which was awesome. It was a great conference. It wasn't huge. It was a couple hundred people, really good speakers, a couple of really good panels. And one of the panels was about forgiveness. One of the questions that that came up in their discussion was, how do you forgive the unforgivable? Which, of course, then led to the question, well, what does it mean for something to be unforgivable? One person put forth this notion that An action is unforgivable when there's no accountability. When the person who did the thing is not accountable for what they did, whether because they're refusing to be accountable or for whatever other reason, then this person said, then that that action for me is unforgivable because they're not accountable. You're never going to get an acceptance of, yeah, I did this thing. I was listening to that 
And I realized that I have to find forgiveness for the woman who did some severe emotional damage to my son. They were married briefly, and she turned out to be emotionally abusive and not really accountable for her actions. She would say, I felt I had to do that. I was with my son, and we were listening to something, some TV show or something, and one of the characters was like, I had to do that. And he's like, bullshit. That was his reaction to what had happened to him. Her actions caused him to leave the state and come live with us for a month because he was afraid to be in the same city with her. And as far as I know, she has not taken accountability for that, for any of those actions. So yeah, I hold a resentment against her. <laughs> and I need to find a way to forgiveness. I need to find that compassion that she is a sick person acting out of her sickness, which is true. I don't know. I'm still struggling with that one, okay? I don't know. I need to sit with that. I need to feel it. I need to talk about it, get some help. I think this is the first time since two weeks ago that I've actually said anything about it. So, Spencer, do you relate to that definition of what's unforgivable? It made sense to me in the moment. It made sense to me that I am, I have trouble forgiving her for her actions because she's not being accountable for them. That is a definition that worked for me in the moment. But Spencer, forgiveness isn't for them. I, I know. <laughs> it just is harder. It's harder to find forgiveness when the person is unrepentant. You managed to find forgiveness for your mother, even though she is unrepentant, right? Well, maybe this will help. I've come to a place I talked a lot about our humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So we all have our strategies for dealing with life. And so I have this belief that I call it the best principle. The best principle is that everybody really is doing their best. And so I ask myself, sometimes I say, shit, that's their best. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought, really? And yeah. then I pause and I go, Yeah. That's their best. Mm. I've gotten a long way with this one because I've come a long way with saying to myself, yep, that was my best. Right. When I'm criticized or when I hear myself criticizing myself, I stop and go, whoa, that, that choice was my best with information I had at that time. I'm always doing my best. And I believe in my core, Spencer, that everybody is doing their best. It's just that some people's best is pretty shitty. That's <laughs> pretty shitty. My mom's best as a mother, like just not ideal, just really harmful. My father's best, mm, lacking significantly, but damn it, that was his best. Mm -hmm. And that is what gives me access to forgiveness. Yeah. Thanks. Because I can find so many things I do almost on a daily basis. You know, I do my 10th step every day. <laughs> and sometimes I think, shit, that was my best. <laughs> and sometimes I go, dang, my best was pretty good today. All right. 
But this in the smallest little moments every day gives me access. It's still hard. I have a hard time with forgiving my brother, right? Mm -hmm. Like his daughter right now is suffering greatly from her own addictions. And she's in a space. And it's hard to witness because I saw where that came from. And it leaves me with anger. And then I have to remember that was his best. And that is hard pill to swallow because I want his best to be better. Because of my loved one. Just sounds like, like with your son. It's your son. Yeah. You want her best to be better. It's your son. Shit. But yet that was her best. And that was his best too, by the way, choosing her. That was his best. <laughs> yeah. I know. And we have had that conversation too. But <laughs> it's still hard. I get it. Uh, so I'm going to turn it around. How has recovery worked in your life recently? So many, many, many ways. Let me just pick some small ones because I think the small ones really help. I have this attachment to my work and therefore if I have more work, then I matter more in the world. And I have this belief also that if I don't push really hard and make things happen, then I'm not going to be okay. And so I have a tendency to push and to force solutions. And there's really is no problem, but I'm still trying to force a solution. And so I have a neighbor, I'm in, I live in a new neighborhood and somebody just moved in store. And this person I heard was in a particular position in which what I do for work, like it could be a new opportunity for me. And so for the past week, I've been really good at not trying to push or force. And then the other day I went over there and I did, and I ended up like asking her more about what her new job is going to be. And I could, I was giggling at myself. This is, this right here is recovery in my life. I was giggling at myself, even as I stood at her door and I realized, oh, this is Misty, not just allowing. I'm, a, I'm learning to allow because I'm already enough. I don't have to push to become somebody. And that the universe has consistently brought phenomenal opportunities into my life and I can allow. But in that moment, I wasn't allowing. And previous version of me would have just been angry at myself. But that version of me was just kind of laughing. Like, this is my humanity. I'm trying to put something. And maybe she is definitely not the right client for me. And I just don't know. Mm. So that's a small example. Like, I think I know who the right people are for whatever, so that I'm going to be okay. But I often don't really know. <laughs> but God does. God knows. My higher power knows. And I always know because it's easy. It's easy to pray with a hoe in my hand. It's hard to hoe and hoe without praying. Hmm. But if I can pray and just keep my hoe, I'm ready. <laughs> the opportunities come to me. Yes, that's how it's working for me in my life right now. Thank you. Also, this podcast, my God, <laughs> a little <laughs> well, bit of perfectionism too. But you mentioned your perfectionism. And I'm like, okay, I've messaged him. I've sent him an urgent message and he's still not replying. Gosh, am I, I need to read the script ahead of time. I need to know what I think he's going to ask things from me. What does he need from me? Uh, he's not telling me. And then this morning I get, I've got to find three songs and I didn't panic. 
I just went, okay, God, <laughs> what are my three songs? Help me find them. Yeah. And it became joyful instead of stressful. That is program working. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I'm human too. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback and your questions. Misty, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voice message at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of forgiveness. If you have a topic you would like to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice of some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make sure it is easier to spot. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show. That would be on our website, which is therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show there, mostly notes for each episode. You can get to any episode if you know the number by going to therecovery.show slash the number. Like this one would be therecovery.show slash 397. In those notes, we will have links to the books, book in this case, I guess, that we read from, videos for the music that Misty chose, And there's also on the website some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And now we're up to song number two before we look at your feedback. What you got for us here, Misty? This one was a hard one for me to pick because I have a relationship with Kristen Hoffman. This song was so cool for me. I've listened to it many, many, many times, and it's helped me sort of our re-entry. The title of her song is Re-Entry. The idea is that we really are one. So re-entering back into the oneness of who we are. Hmm. And Kristen Hoffman and I knew each other for a few years and then some things happened and she doesn't want to be friends anymore. So it was difficult for me to take this song and use it, but it was so healing for me in my journey and my reconnection with myself and also my reconnection with humanity, which comes back down to forgiveness and acceptance of humanity, which it was our humanity that sort of drove us apart. And somebody, if somebody asks me for time and space, I just give them what they need. And so that's where our friendship is right now. But yeah, and I still love her and I will always love her. And I always love this song that she wrote and that she sings with such beauty. Now it's time to hear from you, but actually first, let me say I'm recording this quite a while after the episode was originally recorded. I don't know, apparently I needed a break because it just, it took me that long to get back here. So what did you have to say while I was gone? Joe wrote, hello, in episode 395, there was a question at the end about how therapy and Al-Anon work together. I use both to support my recovery. Both working the program and with my sponsor provide me the expertise of program. Meanwhile, my therapist provides other expertise depending on the therapist's expertise. I also think of my work with the therapist as a form of crosstalk. 
I get feedback about what I share with them, and that feedback isn't limited to Al-Anon program. In a way, I think of working with the therapist the same as non-conference-approved literature. I, too, have always had a therapist that supports my participation in the program, but they have rarely had the expertise of the program. It is still valuable when you find the right therapist, but my sponsor in attending meetings helps me develop in the use of the tools of the program, which is also very valuable. I acknowledge that the ability to go to a therapist is not something everyone can afford to do, but I'm grateful for the way working with both program and the therapist helped me grow in my recovery. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe, for sharing your experience of doing both therapy and the Al-Anon program. I'm sure that will be helpful to somebody who's listening. Susan said, thank you, Spencer. I'm a longtime Al-Anon and AA member. I have a really good life because of the program. Recently, I have been faced with a medical challenge, and the program has really helped me keep faith that it will turn out okay in the end. This morning, I woke up in great distress emotionally and physically. I had the luxury of being able to stay in bed for a while and relax and center myself, and I thought, I need a recovery show. I listened to episode 389 on the four primary ideas. I listened as I got washed up and as I got dressed and as I took my medications and as I got ready to begin my day. I practiced gratitude. I reminded myself that I have to change my own attitudes and actions. I listened to my higher power speak through you and this wonderful podcast that you do. I'm ready for the rest of the day. I'm grateful for you and thank you so much. Susan M. in Boston. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Sarah commented on episode 396, titled Boundaries Revisited. It was the previous episode, yes. Thank you for this episode. I have been feeling like I'm losing my sense of self and I'm a major people pleaser. I relate to the idea that I let others and or other issues get into my cracks, making me not whole. I'm working on my self-worth and have really been struggling. Thank you for your podcast. Sometimes the episode just speaks directly to me, and I so appreciate it. All the best. Thanks, Sarah. I passed that on to Barb, who was my guest on that show. Nancy wrote, Hi, Spencer. I'm a mother of a son suffering from substance abuse disorder and have been listening to your podcast for two years now. After listening to your episode, Mother and Son, I was struggling to figure out why I continued to feel so stressed, even though my son is now following a 12-step program, is working, and really presents as a person who is actively participating in his recovery. That was episode 395, by the way. I had an aha moment when I realized that I had been caught up in a habit of worry. For so many years, he has not been able to deal with his issues, and being the codependent mother that I was, I took responsibility for his recovery. And I see now that I was also taking responsibility for his alcoholism and his failure to thrive. Much of this is instinctive parenting behavior, and I've had to do a lot of work on myself to step away from that dynamic and understand that it's not my job anymore to fix him, and that he alone has to find his way in life. I also realized that I was in some way more comfortable with worrying and revisiting the past than I was with not knowing what the future was going to look like. With the past, I had a framework that I could refer to, and I knew what he was doing was wrong, and I could do my part to help him. I had a false sense of control. But my present and future role as a mother who is not trying to control his behavior is surprisingly stressful and a new learning curve for me. My job now is to step away and not try to be his solution. I can just be a mother who loves him no matter what. I'm getting there, and I'm so grateful for your podcast as it provides a much-needed support system for me on my days of worry and sadness. I'm happy to say that I spend less time in that codependent role 
and more time working on my own issues. I'm looking for a sponsor through Al-Anon that can help me navigate my own 12-step program that I believe will help me maintain healthy boundaries in my life, regardless of what the future brings. Thanks, you, for your continued support. I feel so fortunate to have found this podcast in my time of need. Thanks for writing, Nancy. So much insight, and I'm glad that episode helped you on your journey. Anna wrote to us, Hi, Spencer. I'm reaching out to say thank you for this podcast. I used to listen regularly, then stopped when I started to attend daily Zoom meetings and stopped commuting. Yay, COVID! I recently found your recovery podcast again during a time of real need. Last month, I was overseas in a foreign country in a vastly different time zone, enjoying a packed schedule of sightseeing and not going to meetings. I noticed that I was on high alert, struggling to get my basic needs met for food, water, and sleep, and a secure place to store my belongings. This constant feeling of being at the edge of my comfort zone in surroundings that were unfamiliar and challenging began to take a toll on my sanity. I felt myself starting to unravel. I have experienced this feeling before. It manifests as everyone and everything around me looking crazy scary and wrong in some way. I begin to see the world through my insanity lens. This kicks off the impulse to double down, grip on more tightly, and try to control my experience. As we know, this is a futile endeavor. It doesn't work to try and control an entire country of people and their behavior just so I can feel safe. Thankfully, my program kicked in. I remembered I have a higher power. I remembered that when I don't go to meetings regularly, I start to unravel. And I remembered the recovery podcast. On the next hair-raising car trip to the next tourist-packed sightseeing destination, I donned my headphones and tuned into the podcast. Voila, return to sanity. Nothing around me changed. The trip continued to be challenging. However, I now had a tool guaranteed to open a bit of space between me and me, space that my higher power used to restore me to sanity. One of the podcasts I listened to was the one on diversity and inclusion in Al-Anon. I loved it. I'm a white, cisgendered woman who generally feels more comfortable in diverse environments. Sometimes when I'm in a room, virtual or face-to-face, of people who look like me, I feel sad. It's like being in a garden with only one type of flower. It feels unnatural and weird. Having said that, I also sometimes attend very specific affinity group meetings, such as meetings for parents. As your guest host noted, it is critical to have meetings that are exclusive to BIPOC. I believe in the power of affinity groups. I encourage you to continue to seek out minority voices for your podcast. I believe that if we want to be part of the solution, we have to recognize we are part of the problem and take action. Per the Al-Anon Declaration, let it begin with me. When anyone, anywhere, reaches out for help, let the hand of Al-Anon and Alateen always be there, and let it begin with me. Sincerely, Anna H. Well, thanks for writing, Anna. I'm glad that the podcast could be there for you when you were needing it. Hannah writes, Hi, Spencer and others. My name is Hannah, and I just wanted to send this email, which I've sent like 20 times in my head, to say thank you for your podcast. And I mean, thank you in words I can't describe. I feel like you slash the podcast literally saved my life. I'm 29 and live in Belgium, parenthesis, beer, waffles, Brussels sprouts, parenthesis, in the Dutch-speaking part. Although my significant other is not addicted to alcohol but to drugs, I can really relate to all the things you say, and I find the 12-step program really helpful. Because of you, I learned I'm a codependent, and this awareness is, was the beginning for recovery. P.S. My father is addicted to alcohol as long as I can remember, and my mother literally taught us growing up, other people's feelings matter more than your own. So be good and live your life in the background. I found the podcast at my all-time low when I felt 
I went insane and couldn't cope no more. My significant other was using again, and more and more, after being sober for 40 days, which had never happened before in our year's relationship. The long time sober, I mean. That downfall of his just took me down with him and even harder, since I don't even have the fun part. I now have a feeling this was my higher power leading me to you and wanting me to discover this. I've learned now I don't have to go down with him, and although I'm affected by his problem, it's not my problem. I felt so alone in the first episode I heard, scrolling all the way back to 2013 because, hey, do it perfect or don't do it all, was like a revelation. With every sentence said, I was like, yeah, me too. And I could smile and laugh again, which at that point seemed impossible and an emotion very far away. I've just heard the podcast of Changes, where Swetha and Kelly didn't join anymore, and I don't know. I'm just so glad that you continued the podcast. I had to write this email for real. You and others helped already so much, and I just wanted to let you know I'm on that list. This podcast changed my life, and although I have a long way to go, I'm already seeing small advancements. I'm already so grateful for all you have done and making me not feel alone anymore. Relatives and friends can help a lot, but unless you're codependent and living with active drug use, you just don't fully understand. There's a lot more I can say, but I think my email is already long. English is not my made of speaking language, so sorry for any mistakes. Greetings, Hannah. Thank you, Hannah. Your English is pretty good. Your English is a heck of a lot better than my Dutch. I know that for sure. Again, I'm so glad I can help, and it is messages like this that help me to keep going, even when I, as I did recently, feel like I need a break for whatever reason and not really being aware of it for a while. Yeah, so thanks for writing. A listener writes, I'm new to Al-Anon, although as a therapist, I've often recommended it to clients or even attended meetings with them, secretly checking it out for myself. As a therapist living in a small town, in-person meetings here are often not anonymous and awkward because I'm guaranteed to see clients. This podcast has helped me bridge the gap as I try to work up the courage to attend an online meeting. I'm very grateful for this resource, which I have also been recommending to clients. Thank you. Thank you. Somebody wrote to me, and I might, it might have been you, that I responded with a couple of pointers to some online meetings that I know about. And there's some lists on the website. There's a link to an online meetings page that is sadly probably somewhat out of date, but um, there's that. And also, elanon.org has an electronic meetings page that you can use to find online meetings and also phone meetings. So those resources are there. If you know, you're listening and you're wanting to find an online meeting, it's, it's pretty easy. And some of the meetings are really big and you can just really be anonymous. Don't turn your video on or anything, right? Teresa wrote, just started listening today. Have a daughter and son-in-law who are both somewhat functioning alcoholics. I could handle that somewhat. However, they have two children under the age of six, my grandchildren. It pulls at my heart what their life is like. I see it because I live within a mile of them. They do not experience violence or that kind of abuse. However, they are sat in front of the TV or given an iPad so mom and dad can sleep. They don't get healthy meals, still have pacifiers at six and four years old. I realize I'm a controlling person and want to fix things and give advice. I get very emotional when I think of the kids. Thanks, Teresa. P.S. Do any of the shows discuss small children and grandparents? Yeah, that's got to be tough. I have not had that experience myself, but I definitely have heard people share about being worried about their grandchildren and what kind of life they have. I did write back to Teresa 
I said, as a loving grandmother, you, of course, want the best for your grandchildren while still realizing that your options are limited. You might ask yourself what you can do for the children in your role as grandparent. For example, can you offer to babysit one or two times a week? You could then provide some healthy meals and activities while also getting to spend more time with them. And I don't really remember, or I really don't remember after almost 400 episodes if any of my guests were grandparents, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were a few. Sorry, I can't help more with that question. And Teresa responded, I'm doing the things you suggested, so I guess that's what I can do. Yeah, the family things are hard, and that's why we have Ellen on. Sandy wrote, Dear Spencer, thank you a million times over for creating this podcast and continuing to bring hope to so many listeners. You have helped save my life. I've been married to a high-functioning alcoholic for 34 years, and it has recently become aware that our 32-year-old son has a problem with alcohol. I was shocked to learn this, but when I started to replay our lives, because I was blaming myself for my son's drinking, I saw it, but I didn't see it. I naively thought that all my talk with my kids about the alcoholism while they were growing up would prevent my children from abusing alcohol. My mother-in-law was an alcoholic, and most of five siblings abuse alcohol too. The upside to the awareness of my son's issue is that I've started to attend Al-Anon meetings, reading the literature and listening to the podcast. This combination of assistance has made me see how sick I have become, how I've tried to manipulate situations to avoid the emotional explosions and conflicts. Recently, I decided to stop being a doormat and a victim, and I have choices. Specifically, episode 356 made me realize that all the gaslighting I have experienced during my marriage is an emotional abuse. I am in the process of moving forward with a divorce. But through this process, I find myself waffling, giving in to that self-talk of, oh, it's not that bad. Alan on your podcast have made me realize that I am the only person I can change, and I'm making this huge choice for my well-being. For this, I am truly grateful. I hope you have a wonderful retirement, and thank you again for your service to so many. Sincerely, Sandy from Illinois. Thanks for writing, Sandy. Yeah, that awakening can be brutal, but also amazing. And one of the things that I'm hoping for in retirement is I'll have more time to work on the podcast and I can get back to being uh, more regular. Misty, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, sharing your experience, strength, and hope around forgiveness and all the other stuff we talked about. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I feel like I deepened my understanding of some things and learned some things. And so thank you so much for coming. What a gift it was to be here with you, Spencer. Thank you so much. Really grateful for you and all you do in the recovery community. Thank you. And the third song that came to you this morning is? My third song is Down to the River to Play by Allison Krauss. Now, I gave you a very specific person who sang the song and I'm not remembering her name right now but she was on the voice when she sang the song I, I I felt like if we could all just go down to the river and pray what a we would find each other and our realness and our humanity there and we could connect and heal together you gave me link to Deanna Johnson singing it from the yeah. voice okay I was a little confused because Alex and Krauss and then I Click the link and it's Deanna Johnson. Okay. I might put both of those in there. Could put in Alison Krauss's version too. Yeah, Deanna. Oh gosh, her version of it. Oof. It just 
it makes me want to go down to the river and pray. (laughs) I want everybody else to come down to the river with me and pray with me. And for me, that's what forgiveness is, letting people be where they are in the journey. And even when they get to the river, however they relate, the river is okay. Thank you for listening. Please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.